0: Hi, and welcome to the Saxophone Academy. I'm Dr. Wally Wallace, and on this episode, I interview Dr. Timothy McAllister, world-renowned concert saxophonist. We talk about his new line of mouthpieces, practice habits, overtones, when and how and if you should tune them, and much, much more. If you have a question for the podcast, please do reach out. You can email me, wally, at thesaxophoneacademy.com. We'll also have a bonus episode in a couple of days, and our co-host, Dr. Susan Fancher, is back. So stay tuned. Hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Fairs and like actually organized hikes and the orchestra moves, the orchestra is moving from city to city along these famous trails that that go through uh, New York State, both north and south. Like hiking trails? Yeah. And so, you know, along those paths are these kind of destinations, uh, areas where the orchestra will perform and and people can then sort of uh, uh, essentially um coordinate their travel to to intersect where the orchestra will be it's really oh, wow. quite ingenious and, and they're not making and
0: the musicians hike are they because that's yeah, quite no. dangerous given our, our our level of yeah, fitness in we, general we
1: really shouldn't be do, carrying you no. know, <laughs> instruments or hiking or anything but, uh, but lose, uh, yeah but it's uh, lose it, some cellists yeah we would lose we lose, lose the bell all the bass players the tuba players yeah so But, uh, no, anyway, it was a really wonderful, memorable week. There were a lot of concerts going on. There was tons of new music happening. There were, I don't know, minimum of 15 composers that were there having pieces performed. Sandbox Percussion was there. Uh, They did a big concert yesterday of John Luther Adams, his big outdoor piece in Ixuit. Um, And, uh, yeah, so the orchestra concert was sort of the big cornerstone of the week. Um, And it was a real thrill to give the second set of performances of the Corleano Triathlon, which kind of, it was almost like they built this entire concept of the the, the trailblazing and the American trailblazing and all of that right. and, uh, around even the title of this piece. So I think the curation of what happens at that, with that orchestra is really quite amazing and refreshing and what they do for new music. And David Allen Miller is just I mean, he's got to be the leading new music programmer for orchestras in the country, and he's he's just a great friend of the saxophone. So for him, <laughs> you know, for him to uh, yeah. uh, feature this piece and for them to jump on it so quickly after San Francisco was a real a real honor.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I just had a student ask me, what makes a piece standard repertoire, and. It was a hard question. I thought, like, well, we really can't answer that. We kind of have to wait for historians. I'm not sure we could just say that. As you know, the classical Saxon schools, we love to say, this university's composer, this is standard. You know, we, the yeah. tribalism is going away, which is wonderful.
1: Yeah, I think those, um, barriers, those barriers have been slowly eroding, breaking down. We're, we're seeing so much more, you know, proliferation and cross pollination and all of that. So
0: Right. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think we would all be fooled to think that the, the, the Corleone would not be a standard moving forward. I mean, it's already gotten two, two two performances now.
1: Yeah, I mean, two two series of performances. So, in total yeah. in total four, oh, con- the, right. four concerts and then uh uh you know, they're they're cleaning it up. It will be published with a piano reduction. I, I I would imagine within within a few months. Uh, you know, it needs to be edited and all of that. Um, but yes, I mean, it will be it, when it sells, it will be you know it will sell like hotcakes but it um you know i think it's it's not hyperbole to say that it's it's quite possibly the great american concerto and and a piece that does rival i think for for the longest time in the classical saxophone profession struggles with identity largely because mm-hmm. we don't have those those masterpieces, you know, the ordained masterpieces, and this is a major struggle for the has always been a major struggle for the instrument. You know, you, right. could, you, 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 you could you could argue with a musicologist all day about uh, the status of a composer like Alexander Glazunov, and no musicologist will accept a composer like Glasnov has A tier. You know, they'll, they're going right. to say maybe that's a B tier composer who's getting a lot of great performances of late, his symphonies, the string quartets, the violin concerto, is standard repertoire. It's in the top 10 of the violin concertos. And then everyone's still going to say that the saxophone concerto doesn't rank compared to the violin concerto. So right. it's the last ditch piece. <laughs> it's You know, it's the last piece that Glasnov wrote on essentially on his deathbed. <laughs> you know, so... You know, we're struggling with all of that, and, and Ebert is a great piece, but you know Eber is wasn't Revel and was always in the shadow of these luminaries, you know, like Debussy right. or whatever. So and, and when it comes to the woodwind world, it's pretty hard to top Corleano's clarinet concerto from 1977. I mean, basically, the clarinet literature goes: it, Mozart Brahms, Debussy, Copeland, maybe Nielsen, Corle- <laughs> a, a, and, then, and then Corleano. I mean, right, right, and right. then after Corleano, maybe there's cases being made for Lindbergh's clarinet concerto and a few, you know, some other pieces, but nothing looms larger than the Corleano. And that was 1977. And so we could look at that and say, you know, because of a piece like that, we've never found pieces to match up to what the clarinet has. Right. And there are a lot of people whose, whose opinion I respect that say this piece absolutely matches that or more.
0: And right that's now. really, really exciting. Um, especially, I know, one of the biggest frustrations of classical um, saxophonists that will talk to you behind the scenes, we will mean behind the scenes, is that they spend a lot of time and money and wait, and then they finally get their commission and they think, I, I just don't like this. I don't think this is. Right. And it's incredibly frustrating. and It's one of those things you have to do as a proponent of new music. Uh, well, you are. I'm going to make the argument that not all of us have to be proponents of <laughs> new music. Of course,
1: yeah.
0: I always tell my, my students, like, you know, uh, Tim's got that covered. Now, uh, you know, we can uh
1: let, let's play some Marcello. <laughs> right. Well, and absolutely, and there's a place for all of that. And and right. and this exists in every profession, in every genre. There's subgenres and subclassifications. And, right. and and when we talk about all the little slivers of a of a full pie chart, you know, uh, jazz as a giant pie chart has so many subdivisions, you know, you could right. be a great swing player, pre bop player, post bop player, whatever. You know, or maybe you're just straight up R&B, funk, you know, commercial pop, whatever. And in the classical world, I mean, we, we kind of have a lot of those same divisions. And I I think the danger is if we neglect new music because that's the future. Right. That's the future of trying to build a core repertoire. And then we're also as as, as maybe specialists in new music. We are also uh, we we would be quite wrong to ignore the classics and bringing a higher standard to the classics because that's oh, yeah. pe- because that's where i mean that's that's the bread and butter of the pedagogy and that's where there's the real proliferation happens because you if you're going to turn a, a young student onto any of that literature at all there has to be a great passion for it and and we have to be willing to say that there is a higher ceiling for all of that literature and i think that's driven the pedagogy and and people love to make jokes about, you know, some of that, you know, the cliche licks, in the first five notes of the Crescent Sonata or whatever. But you know what? I can tell in the first five notes of the Crescent Sonata whether this is a good player or not. And we have been, you know, dealing with that stereotype for the longest time that that maybe, you know, there is some literature there. But there's a huge I mean, there's a lot more history of bad performances of that music than there is of like A tier performances of that music. So, you know, we have to be looking in both directions uh, when it comes to the literature. And then transcriptions, I mean, transcriptions are a foundational principle of of how to study to be a a tremendous musician. But I think more importantly, we're talking about syncing up with the traditions of other instruments. And when we have these kind of holes in our background or holes in our pedagogy and we haven't experienced how to play Bach well, then I, I think we start to have these major breakdowns in 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 common experiences you know with with our with, other, with, with, other our, with our peers, peers and right. and essentially you know if we want to say this the gatekeepers so you you want to talk about classical saxophone we are not the gatekeepers and that's something we have struggled with again for a, over 100 years and we're catering to the gatekeepers and the the, ga- le- the gatekeepers being violinists pianists clarinetists flutists the ones who are going to say I really love that person's playing or they're going to say, God, I hate the saxophone <laughs> or, the pe- or the people, or the people they are going to say, right. you know, wow. Yeah. She's really amazing for a saxophone player. Or I, you know, he's, he sounds great, but that's not, that's pretty rare for saxophone. I mean, you know, the, it, it, the you know, our, our peers as great as, as, as we can have wonderful friendships with our peers. I mean, there's a reason they're playing the instruments they play and they're not playing saxophone. And, um, and, I remember many years ago when I was a student there was a rumor that went around when I was a student at University of Michigan um, you know Donald of course you know in the by, the by the late late or the early 90s he was still pretty active performing and I remember you know I remember even uh, the, in 94 I believe it was 94 95 something in there he he gave a big recital where he was celebrating the 50th of the year of playing the saxophone and um, and he did a big recital that included his co premiere of this John Harbison sonata that was commissioned and that was premiered like world worldwide in 1994. And he gave right. his co commission of that or co premiere of that. But I remember hearing that one of the professors at Michigan, a pianist in fact, had said, "You know, Donald Sinta." Is one of the greatest musicians in the world who chose the wrong instrument. He should have. He should have. He should have been a cellist. And that was. That was the. That's a huge compliment and a
0: huge oh, soul-crushing yeah. thing at the same time. Yeah. yeah.
1: No. The, 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 and and I believe history is filled with those comments. And I think it's the type of thing that drives me. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it was something very early on that was kind of crushing, but at the same time, a, a mandate to somehow change that type of opinion that comes from our, you know, again, the, the people who make the rules. Right. And it, 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 you know, the people who's, who, and, and of course, this is something that I think is a very refreshing element. About the, about the jazz world that doesn't exist—that the saxophone in essentially does make the rules in the jazz world, and I think that it, and and the saxophone is the emblematic f- figure.
0: Yeah, a, you open of up jazz. Downbeat magazine, and it's like half the ads are for saxophone reeds and mouthpieces. Right.
1: I mean, and 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 if you're going to create a iconography around jazz, it's going to be right. the picture of a saxophone.
0: Okay? Absolutely, it's, it's
1: not going to be trombone. It's not going to be trumpet, even you know. So um, right, and and um, and uh, so and then and i and i think one of the i think one of the most in my opinion a great burden in the jazz world is that it's really difficult to make it if you if you are not unique and a new voice on the scene and you have a sense of individualism and you pay homage to your to your predecessors but like if you are a if you're a an amazing player who is a clone of Charlie Parker, you will be labeled simply a clone of Charlie Parker and, right. you, and you are doomed to basically anonymity. Right. right. At the same time.
0: Yeah, in, in the jazz world, like you said, if you if you play just like an old player, you're you're written off, unless you're just, you know, in it for the education. At the same time, the constant drive to innovate has kind of left us starting to alienate audiences. Yeah.
1: I think those are those are interesting, like paradigms and, and almost like con, con, contradictions that exist in every field right. in every field like as we innovate in both concert music you know classical concert music new music and innovation in jazz and like that the, the propulsion forward has this way of creating more and more specialization and and yeah i think we do start to really separate from our from our general listeners you know right um, i think it exists in both worlds yeah well, speaking of,
0: of Albany, you sent me a clip of you playing mm-hmm. with the the Albany Symphony, and on the new. Let's go ahead and transition yeah. to the money maker here. Okay. Well, your money maker, <laughs> the the TM. You were playing the TM two, and I got to say, um, I mean it was a beautiful tone. Now, I'm not going to lie and say it was next level. You've never sounded... I mean, you will sound beautiful every time I've heard you. You have to look humble now. Pretend like you're humble. Well, I like, oh, I'm golly. always... I, yeah. oh, 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 shucks, it's, it's, Wally. It's,
1: it's, my, it's my M.O., man. It's like exactly... I mean, I live... I, 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 I just... Uh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> right. Yeah, so I'm
0: going to lay these compliments, but you need to act humble, and that that's fine. So, I mean, the tone was just stunning, uh, and that was the TM2. So, I want to start with... Your sound concept, we all stand on the shoulders of our teachers. Um, uh, two of my teachers studied with Larry Teal. Mm-hmm. and I asked, you know, what did he sound like? And he said, kind of like a prototype Senta. And I mean, I know you can't say anything about, you know, you're not gonna talk about your teacher's tone versus yours, obviously, but you don't sound just like Senta. There's influences for sure, but what shaped your sound concept?
1: Well, first of all, I, I adore I, I adore Donaldson just playing. I mean it, it and and it, it was for it took forever before I could ever find or hear a bootleg of Larry Teal's playing. And so, you know, and, and he, he he wasn't so widely recorded and he didn't really put out like a recital album or you know. Right. You had to find snippets of him playing with the Detroit Symphony, you had to find just sort of snippets of, of live concerts here and there. Um, you know, and he's but I don't he wasn't particularly prolific in, in terms of documentation but he was in you know in, he performed just as a mainstay in the whole Detroit metroplex for for 40 years or more where he was just like the first call everything you know right. wood, woodwinds lead alto clarinet and flute in the Detroit symphony saxophone when they needed it then he was and then he was hired to teach saxophone at Michigan and he was commissioning composers i mean he was kind of doing it all and yet he wasn't making albums you know whereas maybe his his contemporaries like Cecil Leeson were and Vincent Abbado, right. uh, you know, the, the, Joe Allard, you know, he was just kind of doing his thing, you know. Um, but when I did, when I finally did start to hear some some of these bootlegs and snippets, yeah, I did hear that. I could hear the lineage. I could hear that genealogy, you know, of sound, right. uh, and and a, as it kind of progressed from Teal to Sinta. But I think with Don Sinta, his sound concept even though teal was his immediate sound concept, he was studying with Teal, I mean, very early. I mean it, and he was since it was performing on radio in Detroit by at eleven years old on, w- oh, wow. on WJR radio. I mean, so he he was like from the very beginning, Teal was kind of setting him up as this kind of young child prodigy and sort of trying in some ways, I think, from my assessment of the whole of their whole relationship, it was as if he was trying to model a like violin Early, you know, uh, uh, you know, pre-adult education, and try to impose that on on a saxophone pedagogy. You know, start them earlier, more than earlier than a school would start them, and then try to create a pedagogy that would rival, you know, where a violinist might be at eight years old, and nine years old, and ten years old. And so, very, I mean, very early on, since it was being labeled as like this young child virtuoso, or you know, and then of course, you know, the rest is history with his career. Yeah. Um, but but I definitely heard that genealogy. I heard I heard what you said. There was there was a sense that Sinta was kind of like taking Teal's concepts and evolving them further. Right. But Cinta was omnivorous. I mean, he was listening to Johnny Hodges and and he was listening to um, Fisher Discal. Uh, yes, and he was listening to singers and cellists. He was listening to Sigurd Rascher. He was listening to Marcel Mule. Larry Teal would famously abscond his Marcel Mule records. You know, so because. <laughs> Because he didn't he actually didn't want him like copying players. He wanted him to be special and unique in his own way. but but Cinta had this really kind of secret affinity for the for the French players. But whenever I heard Cinta, I heard shades of all of it. I heard shades of singers. I heard shades of rasher. I heard shades shades of mule. I heard teal in there and i think that was the message he always wanted to send that our job is not to just sort of copy our teacher and he didn't want us copying the equipment he you know he played a an old scroll shank 40s right. airflow for forever famously and you know to the point where that table was so warped that like no reeds worked on it and uh, oh, wow. and then once he got that mouthpiece refaced he couldn't play it anymore, like you know. So like he had, you know, he just his entire concept was built around a mouthpiece that was slowly eroding, you know. And um, but but then you know, did he, that
0: have an influence? Did that have an influence of you wanted to work with Richard Hawkins?
1: Yeah, and that's, um, and that's kind of where things started at, with Hawkins. And so I mentioned right. I mentioned that in some of my posts recently about this 30-year relationship I had with Richard Hawkins because. By the time I was studying with senta and in my very first lesson, I, I was coming in and I, with a, ma- a brand of mouthpiece I won't mention here. Um, that uh, that Cinta said in my very first lesson as a freshman, he was like, "Don't you come back in here with that effing mouthpiece." Oh and, wow! And he didn't say effing. All right, so uh, I mean, he said the, the real word. And, uh, <laughs> and 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 uh, and, uh, uh, and and I said and I was terrified and petrified. And at the time, the newest mouthpiece that was kind of hitting, that was on the market was that was hitting it was the S ninety. The S ninety, what it came out in nineteen ninety, right? I mean, that was the whole thing. Right. So, um, so he was like, you, he he was like, give me, you know, I'll get you ten S nineties here by tomorrow, you know, and uh, and we'll find one there. And then after I picked one, he was like, and you need to go talk to Richard Hawkins and he'll reface it for you. <laughs> uh. So and I'm like. Okay, so who's that? And so Richard Hawkins was a graduate student at the University of Michigan in clarinet, studying with uh, okay. um, studying with Fred Orman. But Richard Hawkins was also a David Schifrin student. So that's his real, you know, his real mentor and idol, who's uh, also uh, playing Richard's mouthpiece on now on his Bakun mouthpiece. But um, anyway, I went to he. he to introduced us, and and and. You know, I learned from the very beginning that so many of the mouthpieces that just come off the line have some inherent defect in them, Uh, and and Richard was turning me on to just the concepts of refacing a mouthpiece. So so I mean very uh, so very rarely have I ever played a straight. over the last 30 years it's been very rare that any significant amount of time i've played a stock mouthpiece right just right out of right out, out of a you know a creative bin of mouthpieces and, right. and and i learned early on just how difficult it was to find a special gem among you know a a, a, a series of mouthpieces that are coming off an assembly line essentially and
0: well, especially uh, back then when i think there was a more mold injecting going yes, on
1: there was so much more of molding going on and and yeah mm-hmm. you, you could not fine to Selmer mouth. In the case of Selmer he says, I'm not disparaging Selmer, and they would have, certainly, I, I'm going to recognize that I've been a Selmer artist for forever, and I still am, but, you know, and I and I will have to say that the quality control of Selmer has increased exponentially in the last oh, yeah. 30 years because of just practices, and that's what you're saying. The milling and, has yeah, been the, a game changer. All of it, and so now, you know, it I think they've addressed those concerns, that, that 30 years ago, 10 out of 10 mouthpieces, you'd find one that gave you what you needed, and there were going to be right. some in there that just the rails weren't even symmetrical. And, and then, or the tip rail wasn't defined, or whatever it may be, or there was a lump in the uh, baffle. And, um, and now, once, you know, once, once they started developing all these other lines, like the concept series and all of that, mm. They started to go back and re-improve the S80, S90. The, the, the S90, the,
0: they're milled now and yeah. they're much more consistent. Oh yeah.
1: So I mean, so so there ha- the mouthpiece I've been playing for the last I think five or six years. S90, I've been playing prior to this release of this mouthpiece uh, was a mouthpiece that's never been refaced. So it was it was a mouthpiece I recorded. Oh wow. I recorded the Konosan Concerto on that mouthpiece. I recorded the Fuchs uh, Rush on that mouthpiece. I mean and. Uh, you know, so I I have played their recent stock mouthpieces to great satisfaction. Um, I, I,
0: but, I'm just going to interject and say you're really bad at selling stuff, Tim. Okay. Uh. No, but I mean, well, <laughs> you
1: shouldn't admit that. You're no. like
0: they were all garbage until the Bakun TM2 came out.
1: Well, yeah. no, I mean, no, I mean, I guess it's mostly about the, like the evolution of this process because okay. along the way, the, the 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 best results of so much of what I was getting out of mouthpieces was was through this collaboration with Hawkins of just refacing them and trying to get something out of the mouthpiece that is inherently not designed into the mouthpiece. So and and some of my most successful mouthpieces prior, you know, to prior to some recent ones, were all refaces. And and the things that Richard Hawkins would do were were quite unique and innovative and they were really born out of some of the practices of Robert Scott. Bob Scott was his guru mentor. Right. Bob Scott was he was front and center designing the Larry Teal mouthpiece with Larry Teal, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and every single time I would work with Bob Scott, he would say, "It's shocking how you saxophone players play on such garbage." You know, like mouthpieces that are you know the tables are not flat, the rails are not symmetrical, the tip rails ha- don't exist, and the baff- right. baffles are just wrong. And you know, and he's like, "And you guys figure out how to make it work," and and that would never pass in the clarinet profession. And, and so there, there's just a long history of us playing on warped mouthpieces, trying to find reeds to work with them. And for the longest time, and it has to be part of the educational process, a student needs to understand that, the, you know, maybe there might be strange elements to your orthodontia or your bite, but really it, it's absolutely imperative that the rails are 100% symmetrical. Some people don't believe that, I, uh, but I, I can't have that conversation. I cannot converse with someone who believes that the rails shouldn't be symmetrical to have a great sound. I mean, I can't have that conversation. They have to be perfect because the reed needs to vibe. Now you would find reeds that work that right, that, right. That, that are unbalanced to fit that mouthpiece, but in that and people used to say that. Well, you know, mouthpieces, you know, reeds are all harder on the left side because all mouthpieces are warped on the right. I mean, there there were a lot of the people would say these things like throughout the seventies and eighties that you know right. you know, if you want that of sound, you gotta have the left rail has to be longer than the right. I mean that's just, oh my. That's, yeah, just okay. that, that's just ridiculous. But that stuff was going on. There was a
0: lot of uh, bro science, as we call it these days. yeah, um, yeah, yeah well Yamaha there's the soft metal, though, but you can't play a Yamaha, they they right. just bend. Exactly. They're soft metal. And I, was like,
1: I know what? bro <laughs> science. I love that. But bro, well, that's what, yeah. Well, so anyway, but that just led to this, I mean, eventually, I mean, with with all of the things that Richard was learning over time and all of the saxophone players that were going to Richard to have him reface their equipment. I mean, he was just data mining the whole time. All these different, you know, these these qualities of players that are coming to him, the things they're asking for, they're all asking for things out of the mouthpieces that they just can't give you unless you reface it. And you know, get making the lay slightly longer, or making the tip rail thicker, or changing the shape of the baffle, and and you know, so I think that's just where that all of that expertise and and data mining, as I said, it really resulted in him approaching me, and in uh, in December of 2019, and said, I have this new relationship with Bakun. I, I, I'm so happy what, what what they're doing, the amount of investment that's gone into their tooling and machining. I think the time is right, and and we need to make a mouthpiece.
0: Yeah, and, they're using. Uh, I spoke. Had a great conversation with Joel, who was the the Baccoon, I guess liaison for you and, and Richard. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're making your mouthpieces on a million dollar nine axis milling machine using cross stitch milling, which uh, even if you're googling, I, I still don't know what cross stitch milling means.
1: Yeah.
0: But <laughs> you know, it. Yeah. It's a beautiful hard rubber. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the TM1, TM2. When I listened to your clip of you playing with Albany, I think I heard one of the things that this mouthpiece really, the TM2 specifically, um, it's a little bit like a high-performance car, meaning that if you're not careful for the vibrato, you could steer off the road. Um, but I think you have a enough cooperative resistance you can blow over a symphony, but yet there's still this this uh, responsive subtleness to your vibrato. Am mm-hmm. I anywhere in the ballpark of... of what you were looking for in this mouthpiece.
1: I think so, absolutely. I mean, th- that's something that I, I think other mouthpieces have failed me in. When when it's time to project and, and to be a larger version of myself in a symphonic setting, then you start blowing past the tolerances, of, you start blowing past the tolerances of the mouthpiece. Right. Suddenly, you, 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 you're outside of the pitch center of the mouthpiece, you're outside of the, the, the sort of the tonal core of the mouthpiece, and then suddenly the vibrato just goes off the rails. Right. This, 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 my goal for this mouthpiece was that as you begin to create more and more volume, and you continue to contri to attempt to contain your sound, that the tolerances are, stay intact and your vibrato can sit in the center of that pitch line. So, uh, yes, it, but you could, you could still easily steer it off the rails. I mean, we have to say, we have to say that that with equipment like this does come great responsibility. I don't think it. I don't think it's necessary. I don't, and I don't believe. That it's going to answer everyone's issues, and it's not going to check everyone's. No mouthpiece could check everyone's box. Right, I and mean,
0: that's I mean, that's this is a almost if the team two specifically. We'll talk about the team one in a second. The team yeah. two very felt a, a purpose built. And when I listened to you playing with the Albany Symphony, I thought like, yeah, okay, I I I think I really see. Because um, obviously you were singing over that that large ensemble, it did not sound like you were pushing or straining. And granted, even if it did, I couldn't
1: admit that in an interview; that'd be very rude. Well, I mean, I, but, but I but I think those have been the struggles. I right. I think throughout my life I've been tired of, of the of the messaging that says, okay, you know, you have to you have to really play differently, significantly differently, outside of your entire skill set in order to play with a band or a symphony orchestra. Santa used to talk about like the 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 rite of passage that comes with your first concerto playing in front of a band or an orchestra in which you're just going to walk off stage feeling like shit (laughs) okay because you're you because you can't you're 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 pushing to be heard you're trying to find the pitch center of an ensemble you start playing with like a more amateur band or a a high school band you can't find the pitch center of that group and then if you're playing with a an incredible college wind ensemble and you play the Ingolf Doll Concerto, you're going to get blown off the stage. And and so, you know, and so for him, it was always like prepping us for that day that we would have this epiphany that we have to change the way we operate. Like you're going to have different reeds, different, maybe even a different mouthpiece for the day you start playing concertos if you get that opportunity. Or if you win a concerto competition and you're playing the Crested Concerto for the first time in the orchestra, you're going to be outside of your comfort zone. And, and and I think that I, I learned those lessons early on in a way that it was like you know it, it, it's it's deflating to have to think about uh, well I'm gonna I have a concerto coming up so now I got to find a whole different kind of read or I need to now I need to think differently about my ligatures or my setup and I just wanted a setup that could that could operate in every setting and then when I change gears to how I play whether it's intimate chamber delicate chamber music or Symphonic concerto. When I change the equipment, can accommodate those different gears.
0: Right. I, I very much feel that. Like it. Well, like with great power comes great responsibility. The TM2 has that. I was really struck that. And in speaking with uh, with Joel, the TM1 is not the same mouthpiece with the smaller tip opening. Yes. It's a different beast. It's a different. It's and a different. Concept. That's where I found it was incredibly friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think like those are that thus that. Would you believe a lot of saxophonists don't get uh, calls to do concertos all that often? I, no,
1: exactly.
0: Yeah, right. and so for a lot of us, the, the TM1, I just I put on uh, a great cane read. Uh, it worked beautifully with Legere and the new Venn. Um, and it was just so easy. I hate when people use the word effortless because, frankly, classical saxophone is not effortless. It's really hard to get rid of now you know. <laughs> buzz and fight. Fun- I mean, you know, yes, it's, it's a challenging pursuit. But it was incredibly comfortable, the TM1. Um, so... The TM2
1: came first, correct? The T the concept of the TM2 came first. Yes. Okay. We 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 thought okay, we need to really kind of go right down the midline and say that the the largest the largest demographic prefers a classic C star facing concept, you know, mm-hmm. that one fifty two to one fifty five to one fifty eight tip opening, and uh, an a lay that that really allows for a softer three type strength to, right. to operate and that has been the that has been just the, the midline for uh, i don't know 50 60 years more i mean yeah. whatnot um and and every variation has been in relation to that midline right so it's right. either going to be more open we're going c star c double star d e f okay if <laughs> we're and then we're going down from c star Right. And then, so the S90 was the first to really look at that and say, okay, S90, 190 was the C-star, 180 was a little less, 170 was quite closed, and then that really is what played into, um, that's where we started to see these kind of nationalistic trends f- uh, define uh, the sound of players. When we talk about the French, the modern French school, well, those, 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 kind of broader characteristics that would be the stereotype is more closed and harder reads and the, right. cl- the classic american stereotype is more open softer reads that's been that has been the archetype kind of stereotypes for right. a, lo- a long time and so you know and i hate to get i really really despise when we get into uh um uh, you know the I, I really despise the bright versus dark talk. Sometimes that happens. Well, French, right. pl- French players are bright, and American players are really con- consumed with playing dark. Uh, and and when we need it, we need we need it all, and we need it all in different at different times. So the one right. the one TM one is a is a love letter to those that really love the closed mouthpieces, the more closed tip mouthpieces, um, where even with a three. They can kind of get some things out of it, but but there, there was a certain ease that we were going for. and I right. think and the tip rails a little smaller, so that you can actually go to a harder read and get a little bit more kick out of it. and uh, but the the length of the lay is not too different than TM one. It's just a little shorter. It's just that the curve is just less um, less pronounced as you head to the tip. and And I think that provides an immediate sense of comfort. Um, and, you know, but I think the bore is giving you the fundamental and, and a little more fundamental than, a, than maybe a more closed tip.
0: So I will say to, to my students and listeners, if you're not sure which one to get, um, because frankly, I mean, it's a little, it's a reasonable price. I think it's two forty nine.
1: um, map price. Yeah. I think that's the map through their website. And then I think dealer, dealer prices will be less. They'll be there for read. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So and definitely go support Detailing your local store and
0: if they are not a uh, dealer of of Bakun products go tell them hey man stock bacoon cuz they're a really cool family company I've enjoyed chatting with them they're really um yeah, they're really no, great. just so I would just say to my students if you're not sure which one to get I really I don't think you're going to go can go wrong with the TM1 um, but if you're playing uh, concerto work um, back when I was in the military band I would play with high school ensembles and I would have really loved a TM2 back <laughs> back then. Uh, yeah, so in Sioux I, yeah, the, the roots of Concerto Cantare, Concertare, to work against, yes. it, it
1: feels that way at times. Well, and, and then I do think for some people, it, there can even be a progression. Some people might develop uh, uh, the, the playing around TM1 and then maybe they reach a point where they feel like they've outgrown it in some ways. Oh, you no. know, they and, the, and then when they try TM2, it may start to give them a little bit more fortitude to push against. Um but i think that's the same it's really sort of the same issues that we've seen with some other with other companies that, that their sort of mid, their their midline mouthpiece was generally tailored to be a little easier to play, like a right. student model, you know, uh, not a student model, but yeah, I mean, yeah, student models. I mean, the, the, the for instance, all those mouthpieces that came with our saxophones back in the day, yeah, yeah, um, you know, th- they were designed as an, in some ways for an entry experience. I wouldn't say TM one is a is considered a student like entry ma- mouthpiece, but oh, it, no, but oh, it has, no. yeah, but it, but it, but it, but it, I do think it, 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 it will accommodate you know, really young players all the way to a a professional who's just looking for that. Right. uh, That quality. I mean,
0: well, man, congratulations. I mean, it's incredibly exciting. Did you enjoy the process of product development or was it stressful? Did you ever wake up and think like, what if I choose the wrong prototype?
1: Yeah, I do think it was quite stressful. Uh, And and what was really hard is, Wally, Wally, this was done in the midst of a pandemic where, We weren't able to ever be in the same room with each other. This no. was a mouthpiece completely designed over Zoom. Okay, well, and I, so yeah, I, know, did I, mean, the, I did the
0: same thing with Theo Wane. My mouthpiece, yeah, yeah it was. Yes. Uh, and then I would wake up in the, middle of the night, like, oh God, was it? Was it the version seven point five or fourteen? I would wake up in a panic, yes. like, what uh-huh. if what I choose that goes to milling isn't the exact perfect
1: one? Right, and and in this case, like, uh, until I mean, when we were dealing with our own lockdowns. Uh, in, in, and in the case of Bakun, they're in Canada, so right. we had a border. Cl- we had border closings. Oh,
0: we man. we couldn't
1: get we we couldn't get there. We couldn't get there to be in the room with with the team for them to actually for me to play for them to hear that feedback. It was all simply being done. Okay, I. We're doing this with the best microphone equipment I have that I can work with, and work, or I'm going to record myself. I'm going to try to put no processing on that, no, you know, be in the driest room as possible. Right. And and with with Richard Hawkins, we were going back and forth just with our nice headphones and microphones, and and simply trying to to kind of get a a sense of its characteristics uh, that were translatable over in this case over a medium that I think really defined those two years pr- primarily of the pandemic, where. We were all right. We were all consumed with more and more content. We were putting out more and more content. So suddenly, the, the the microphone was becoming our true ears, and that was how we were being evaluated for so long. And I found that okay. So I'm really going to invest in good Neumann microphones and good you know good good setup here. And it really kind of got me off my butt to 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 innovate within my own uh, within my own uh, you know inventory of stuff for audio right. AV, but. But I started to really send a message that how, how does it how does this translate really over over uh, a microphone and that, but that's all we had. So then finally, when we when we when we did enough back and forth and we started to roll out some early prototypes, um, I mean somewhere around I don't know somewhere around the eighth prototype fi- before I was getting close to really signing off on it. Uh, I finally was like, okay, things are better now. I, you know, we we can we can visit each other, and and that's when I started. in Oberlin Conservatory is where Richard Hawkins is professor of clarinet, okay. and so that's just right. And that's the two hour, two and a half hour drive from from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So it was finally easy for me to just start driving down to see him and play for him and work together. And then right before I signed off on the mouthpiece, I went down and I said, I'm not going to give my okay for a mouthpiece that I haven't actually gotten feedback from anybody in, outside of a concert hall. So we were able to sign out their large hall at Oberlin, and I went down and played for Richard in their hall. And that's when we started to, I think, really center in on what these characteristics are. Because he was he was floored... By when we started doing A B testing between like all my previous mouthpieces, all my number ones and number twos, and then between these two, the TM and T2, TM1 and 2, and different retypes, we were going through a bunch of different commercial strengths plus, or commercial brands and strengths plus Legere, looking at Legere signatures, right? which was really, I think, a goal for them to really pair that because they have a really deep relationship. Bakun has a deep relationship with Legere. Um, but and you know, a lot of times you can buy the mouthpiece in a package with with a reduced cost legerie. But um, we started truly identifying those characteristics. That when I played the TM two, it was just shocking how much you know wider the profile of the mouthpiece was. But that that the higher you went on the mouthpiece, it retained its this this column of sound that maintained its core all the way to the top of the range of the saxophone. And what we found with my my, my previous mouthpiece is that the bottom of the instrument was louder naturally, as mm-hmm. a conical bore instrument is, and as you would go to the higher, you know, palm keys of the left hand, the saxophone sound was just inherently getting smaller. It was becoming more, you know, tinty and right. uh, and and smaller in tone, and And I think the real, the real, the the the, the real inspiration and the goal for me. In the classical world, we do so much manipulation. It, back to what Bob Scott's comment was, is that we work so hard to do, to do all these things. Right. And and with someone like Don Cinta, who was constantly constantly manipulating, and he really coined all of the terminology around voicing and 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 you know tone, you know palate, and all of that movement in the palate. Something that had existed in jazz forever. But, right. You know, in the classical world, we were like so obstinate that, that you know, we, we don't do that in classical. When, which, in fact, you cannot play a conical bore instrument without voicing, you know. But, we, but as a pedagogy, we were in this infancy and this kind of like resistance to the flexibility that we were seeing Rasher employ. Right. And in fact, when we talk about the pedagogy cold wars you know, Rasher wins, so this fr- this French versus Rasher whatever di- this this debate, which was ridiculous, it, yeah. in the end Rasher was right all along. You know the manipulation of the tongue position and the, and the throat position is going to achieve all of the desired goals and overtones and harmonics and altissimo and all that. Well, Senta was really kind of putting that really into action in kind of the hard the hardcore classical academia, and and all that manipulation was really meant. To just enhance the instrument beyond the uh, beyond its natural capabilities. So I wanted a mouthpiece that would work with me and not against me. Right, and
0: and the better the mouthpiece works, the less manipulation you have to do. Right, right,
1: um, and that's what we found finally with w- when we kind of found the chemistry and the just the right kind of balance between what we were doing with the baffle and and the bore and the and the lay. We just we we really found something where I'm not having to generate all of this this kind of extra effort which in my in my mind is a distraction if i'm thinking about active colorization at 100% of the time in order to achieve what i want on a mouthpiece that won't give me what i want right then then i actually would find that i i i, I can't focus on the music i'm I, if i'm paranoid the entire time about color and intonation and cover and all of that and if it's just always in my in the front of my thinking, then I can't, I can't just enjoy it. And that clip I sent you is an example of playing something that I think is just achingly gorgeous in which I can just be myself. And, and and so, yes, you know, Bakun is going to be very freely admitting that this is not a mouthpiece that was designed by committee. You know, this was a, this was a mouthpiece that is tailoring to something very specific. People can hate it or love it. But, uh, but I think if, if it's something that, that I think can really help us achieve something in a similar vein, right. Then then I'm, then I'm so happy to be able to pay all of this forward. That's really cool.
0: Um, I'm going to be respectful of your time, but I got a couple of aching questions. that if I don't ask my students, my students will slay me when you're proud. <laughs> so, so we've talked about, Hey, you talked about tip rail, uh, even this, so I can't get nerdier than that. Um, yeah, no, man. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're both going to lose our lunch money after this. And that's cool. Um, <laughs> When you practice overtones, do you worry about tuning the overtones or are you working about resonance and learning the voicing or a little column A, a little column B?
1: What's the answer for the love of God? I want to know. Um it's, it's it's yes, it's it's any and all above because we're, we're looking at Well, okay, this is interesting too. Just to back backtrack to the mouthpiece. I was I just did, I'm finishing an album right now oh. which has t- which has been taking place over, you know, almost a year of recording. But of course the last two tracks I've recorded and I'm about to finish it this weekend have been on the TM two and my engineer. We, you know, we did we, every single time we've recorded, we have, we have established the exact same setup and we have, we have measurement tape. We have, you know, we have f- videos and film. We, we know exactly where the microphones right. have been every single time. And, and it's in the horn hasn't changed. And, it, and he says, it's shocking with what he's receiving, with how what's being picked up on this mouthpiece, and in his opinion, the mouthpiece I was playing before, compared to the TM2, he believes that the the TM2, that the overtones are properly aligned, and I thought that was really interesting. And 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 he said he believes that that the overtones are resonating properly, whereas the other mouthpiece, those were either dull or they were just out of sync in his mind. And when he looks at the spectrograph of that, or looks at the kind of the waveforms of that, he can see it. And I thought, well, there's acoustic scientific reasoning yeah. behind that. But so when you when you talk about working on overtones we we're dealing with the natural overtones in which i think we have to exploit following their lead and understanding that the natural overtones sit where they want to sit in order in order to be part of its parent frequency and so there are a lot of people that will work on overtones as a way to manipulate that partial and try to tune it to equal temperament and and if we try to tune our overtones to equal temperament we are actually we are actually stripping them of their natural qualities so what is tuning those t- overtones to int- equal temperament teach us well it's teaching us intonation manipulation right but it's a sep- that's a separate narrative or a separate topic right so i do believe that when i work on my overtones i let them be where they want to be i mean i'll let, i want those partials to kind of like naturally and you because feel the
0: foreign rings and sings it's it's a pleasure i spoke to a performance psychologist um, and she was talking about the the physical pleasure act of engaging in the activity, and when we play overtones, and then it, like you say, it sits, and you can feel
1: the whole horn just vibrating and singing. It's so
0: pleasurable.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and so that so when we when we talk, when we, we are, we're talking about resonances, right, right? right? We're talking about we're talking about sympathetic vibrations. Mm-hmm. We're talking about a natural acoustics that we we require, and the reason that music came about in our civilization to begin with, right? So I, I don't think we should ever deny that. Um, so, but, I, but then that would be one set of characteristics, and then the other set of characteristics would be, for instance, doing pitch drones where you're playing the overtones and you're trying to match pitch. Right. That's just developing good ears. Right. That's really what that is. Uh, when it, and then, but, but but kind of back to your other discussion, I mean, or your other, ask, your other uh, question within that, I mean, I'm practicing overtones to to work on resonances equal temperament and just temperament but then i'm also t- looking at it from a physiological standpoint that i there has to be a sense of memory that is always being codified and reinforced right i mean you, it, it's not just enough to teach our students to hear it they have to feel it and they have to understand that that we have to clock in and and dial up memory for every single partial that we play and that that act, that that repetition, that daily ritual of coming back to that every day, is the only way to manipulate this this thing that we're passionate about, this tube, right? <laughs> right. This two this naturally two and a half octave tube that you know say, that Adolf Sachs was saying it was four octaves, and and it was somehow being denied of that true nature until Rasher started to say, well, no, it's a four octave instrument. Right. Um, and no no more is that true than on, say, the larger instruments. Like in this Corleano triathlon, the baritone saxophone movement is the one that utilizes the most amount of altissimo. So th- as, as we're heading to the lowest instrument, the range of the piece is getting greater and greater and greater. So the lower the instrument, the more overtones we can play, the more yeah. altissimo we have at our disposal. However, you're talking about, at best, 50-50 accuracy, on on all the highest highest notes, the next octave above the top note of the baritone, yeah, I mean you'll be lucky if you're getting it 50, 50, you know fifty percent of the time. So absolutely, all of that time spent working on overtones is about memory dialing up that memory and you know splitting the arrow within the apple. And I, I I, so I think it's tri- it's trifold, right? Yeah, it's it's equal temperament, just temperament, memory work. And and uh, and then it's a true application in this regard to altissimo.
0: Right. OK, that's a lot to chew on. Next question. You got an hour to practice. You're on the road. You've traveled to Albany. You've traveled to California. You got an hour to practice, Tim. Only an hour. What are you going to do?
1: So, well, certainly long. I mean, I have I can't get to the next phase or the next level of my practicing if I haven't done my long tone. So I know it's cliche to say it. Do you enjoy I it? I actually I, find it pleasurable. Uh, uh, well, I find it very pleasurable, uh, very pleasurable. And also it, it's it's just as necessary as brushing your teeth or you're or <laughs> taking a shower or yeah. whatever, you know, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I mean, like I, I you know, it, it's, it's nourishment for your entire day. And as a musician and, and everything has to be set around it. So if I skimp on that, if I if I do too much of a um, um, you know, an express version of my warm up, if I if I if I do that, at at our age, we pay the price because you'll start to develop you'll start to when you're younger, you may develop t- tension without any kind of Uh, pain coming out on the other side of that. The older we get, the the more tension in our playing to actually, it does manifest itself into pain. Right. Right. And so, I mean, if we're not warming up properly, you know, our hands will hurt. I mean, you know, if we're not practicing our scales slowly or whatever. I mean, I've been developing mild arthritis now as I approach 50 years old. I mean, you know, and I still, I can play through that. And, and, uh, but, but, but mostly it just comes from making sure that I keep moving and I'm active and I warm up properly. I can't just start playing fast technical passages without warm up. I will pay the price. Right. So the older I've gotten, the more I continue to hamper on that to my students that, you know, now in my teaching, a good 20% of, of my instructional material is about body awareness and stretching and musician yoga and. Right. I, I spent last summer in physical therapy for a shoulder injury issue that I think was born out of sitting in front of Zoom for a year and a half and 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 playing with with strange posture to try to mm-hmm. fit inside of a camera image and and just even dealing with uh, playing saxophone in a non-musical chair sometimes. I mean, I, I I ended up. i already I already had some tension and issues in my in my in my back and my shoulder, but finally, it just came to a head where I thought it was career threatening. And and I went to a physical therapist, and it just changed my life. And and there's just no shame in all of that. We have to know how to ask for help. Oh yeah. And, and and every single and we got students that are so precocious and ambitious and hungry, and they're practicing way too many hours. They're practicing way more hours than they should, frankly, because if you can't get what you need to get done in a three two to three hour span, then you're not practicing properly in the in the first place. Right. But this myth of eight hours a day, in order to sound like Tim McAllister, is a bunch of garbage, you know. So I mean, so we've seen students injure themselves, and I've seen it a lot, especially with the demands of our repertoire. We've seen we've seen students taking on literature too soon, and, and yes. they haven't really followed. They haven't really followed a path. They haven't looked at pieces as stepping stones. They want to go straight from the Crescent Sonata to the Denisov Sonata, and they've ignored everything in between. And, and, and an undergraduate will say to me, they want to work on, you know, X piece. And I get to the point where I just have to say, look, you need to trust me. And I'm telling you, no, you're not going to play that piece. Good for you. And they'll, well, well, I'm going to go, well, fine, you know, and I'll be like, hey, I'll be happy to write you a recommendation for another university because this is my way. And my way is to not allow you to protect you to play something that I don't think you're musically ready for. And you're physically not, you're physically not ready for it. So when it comes to that express warm up, one hour, it's got to be my long tones, no matter what. I've got to make sure I transfer that long tone work into slow scale work before I work my scales back up. But I think I'm very judicious about what 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 I'm there to do. So if I have an hour to warm up and I and I'm gonna or I'm gonna be out of shape or I, I need an hour of practicing and it's an Albany Symphony week, well, all of that warm all of that practicing is going to be geared toward towards elements in the piece. So it's going to be those really technical passages, and I'm going to just treat them as like like I would my slow major scale work. Right. I mean, I'm just so I'm just going to apply everything to the task at hand, and that does kind of translate into my teaching during the school year. I mean, I will say I will just be honest to a student sometimes and say, look, you've got a recital in two weeks. Um, you, for right now, we're certainly going to forego etude work, and and there's no reason for you if if your recital is is completely full of octatonic scales and pentatonic scales and you're spending two hours on your major scales then you're 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 actually not making good use of your time so major scales are the foundation of your warm-up but they're not necessarily they're not necessarily what you what represent the task at hand so transfer all of the work that you're doing in your repertoire transfer it to your warm-up I
0: love that. In the jazz world, I have my students because my adult amateurs, they have limited time. I mean, they've got kids right, and jobs right. and grandkids. And I say, use your long tones, do the chord changes, make the chord yes. changes your warm up so you can start to hear and integrate yes. those sounds. I love that, that getting rid of this tough guy, well, you just knuckle through and do five hours of hard practice. And right. I mean, life's too short. And as you, you, it is. you mentioned, once you get to your 40s, the, the younger kids listening, once you get to your 40s, your body betrays you. Um, yes. I get alcohol-free hangovers now. I'll
1: wake up with a hangover, and I, and I didn't drink, Tim. <laughs> no, I know. I, I, if if I don't have enough water, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll have vertigo I'll have vertigo the next morning, you know, getting out of bed. Right. I mean, so you know, it, it, it's uh, they need to learn that, right? Um, and and, the, and I know they're like roll their eyes at the, you know, the old guy, you know, saying these things that are good for you, but you know, I mean, the older we get. The the, the the more true everything they all said you ne- we need to eat our greens, more yeah. green food, less less brown food, more green food and uh, and we need to exercise and we need to stretch and we need to we need to do our best you know within reason we need our to do our best to stay in shape it's hard. I mean it's hard oh, yeah. and we we're not athletes, but we have to treat this thing that we do from a from an athletic standpoint uh, because we're involving so many muscle groups, and soft tissue and ligaments and tendons and everything stems from your back and your neck and your. And your how, if you're having trouble with your hands, it's new. It's not where your hands are. The problem is emanating from probably your upper back. Right. And and you know you learn. I was. I had so much shoulder pain, but it turned out the reason I had all this shoulder pain back here had nothing to do with the shoulder itself. It had to do with the fact that I had no flexibility across my collarbone. Okay. And and that I had uh, across my sternum. So I had no flexibility here, and so it was from decades of practicing with poor posture and letting the saxophone pull me down towards the mouthpiece right and so you know that that kind of like con- condensed posture was pulling everything so much forward that i had never developed any kind of counter counterbalance exercises to address that posture so Finally, I am. I'm probably at, 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 I'm 50 this October, and I'm probably now performing and playing with the best posture of my life. Have you
0: seen that pay dividends in your playing and in your practice?
1: Yeah, I'm breathing better. That's great. I'm, I mean, I'm breathing better because the mechanism has kind of expanded right much more, and my head is up better, and uh, and I'm not and I'm not kind of torquing down onto the onto the onto the mouthpiece now. So my head's a little bit up, and it's actually helped the optimal angle for a classical mouthpiece. We, I, I I like to say. You know, if it's a super broad cliche, but I'll say jazz, nose down, classical nose up. And 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 I'll say that simply because we're trying to get to the, the real optimal spot on the fulcrum of the reed. Right. And if I if I really want to open up that sound for a jazz color then I'm going to drop the angle off of the fulcrum, you know, to where I'm getting a little bit more subtone in the sound. Right. And and, uh, and I, you know, I actually do think this mouthpiece caters to that, even though it's not a jazz mouthpiece. It does have enough flexibility that you can manipulate some some stuff out of that. Right. You know, uh, especially with a softer read on TM2. I think a softer read on TM2 will give you a closer, it will give you some characteristics of like a Meyer 5 or 6.
0: It's very flexible. Know, and, yeah.
1: Yeah. With that. But yeah, that's that. That would be my hour. I mean, that hour is going to be very tailored to whatever to what, I'm working yeah, on yeah. at the time. Yeah,
0: yeah. I love, I love that. Um, so, final question. I know you need to get going. So, I heard in an interview, uh, someone asked Branford Marsalis, uh, "What is? What are you doing to grow the jazz audience?" Uh, you know, jazz players, there's not enough work to go around. What do you, basically, you know, how do you see growing jazz? And he had a great answer that was, that's not my responsibility. I'm responsible to my quartet, if we have enough audience to pay our bills, and past that, I mean, that's not my problem you can't have that easy of an answer because you have students that you know it's not it's not cheap to study with you as you know I'm, i don't doubt it's worth every penny but for you and my mission is similar my mission is to help train more eyes balls and ears for your virtuoso world class students um what can we be doing to grow the saxophone is it is it the top tier is it the you know g- knocking over the gatekeepers is it getting more community ensembles what any thoughts you have on that of what we can do to grow because I want the second saxophone craze, the twenty, the nineteen twenties saxophone craze. It's the twenty twenties. I think it's
1: time for for number two. I, I, I think we're on the. I think we're in the. I, I, I think we are on that path that you say. I think we are. We are sort of seeing a new, a, a new revolution because people are seeing. I think at least in the student in the student population. Um, they're finally seeing some path pathways to follow, um, some, 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 uh, blueprints that I think they can, that they can at least tap into. And I think I saw that a little bit when I was their age. I mean, we didn't have all of these amazing resources that we have now. I mean, it's amazing what we're doing right now. Right. It's nothing, nothing like this existed. You know, uh, we had vinyl and CDs were starting to come out. Um, but we had no forums, community, social media. We didn't have message boards yet. All the kind of you know, all those toxic chat boards you where know, a good hobby like, goes uh, to die. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but you know, um but they still those still didn't exist yet. We were we, we were we lived in isolated we had isolated lives. We le- we 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 lived in isolation of one another, except when we played in band or maybe, you know, or jazz band or concert band. Uh, you know, when I was in high school I was I was very attuned to the, the the genre of saxophone quartet, and it was fun to play with my friends. And there was all those kind of like training pieces and transcriptions, Vo- Jaime Voxman books, yeah. and all of that. But but I mean, I I kind of understood a little bit early on that there was a path here. I mean, I I I frankly, I mean, I loved listening to Charlie Parker and Coltrane when I was in high school. But I was admittedly just overwhelmed by it. There was it, it was absolutely the wrong. Uh, gateway music yeah. to try to be a jazz musician. Well, you, you know and you're supposed so, to like it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: Love Supreme, you know, it's a, you know you're supposed to like it, and you're like, yeah,
1: yeah. but Yeah, yeah no, no, I mean, but I would... Li- and then when I heard Ornette Coleman, all right, and I started to hear, like, free jazz, I'm like, I have no idea what's happening right, right now. I had no comprehension, you know. So I felt like I did feel alienated from understanding what that is, because I wasn't even... Ta- I was taking with private teachers who weren't part of that world themselves. Um, and so... It seemed too overwhelming to me. Although I did, I did like transcribes from Sanborn. I loved Grover Washington. I found that penetrable. I could, I could transcribe a tune that was basically in one modal key and, yeah. pen, and mostly pentatonic scales. It's like, well, this was this. Okay, I love this. This is amazing. But I think my life revolved around, you know, concert band, and I and I fell in love with the solo literature, and my private teacher was demonstrating and modeling for me, and a lot of that. So, you know. So th- so I did see that the path for me was okay 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 I, I understand okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and I'll do the band camps and I'll audition for colleges and then I realize you get into a good music school and then you get a degree in this and then you get and then maybe down the road uh, you know you try to become a teacher of this you know a professor and so right. I had at least some kind of sense that there was a path. And now we've blown open the doors on what those paths can be because we don't all fit that mold, and I think there's room for all of us. I mean, I I tend to take the much more optimistic view that, that every one of my students, every one of your students, we all will find our place. We all can and will find our place in this whole organism. And, it, you know, some, some people will have a tiny sliver of the pie, of the piece of the pie, and some will have a much larger sliver, okay, and we have to not evaluate ourselves accordingly. Some, you know, some people, look, behind every great, you know, mouthpiece uh, mouthpiece company, there's a designer who is a musician, okay? These are, these are people that, that got into music for the same reasons that you and I did, and, and they're giving back in this way. And then other people are getting into marketing and publishing, and people are getting into administration. People are getting into... Uh, uh, you know, AV and music technology, and I mean, we, we all find our place. Okay, and so, okay, right now, I I understand my place, and and I and I tell my students, it's not your job to try to be me. It's not your job to try to be me. Uh, it's your job to be, hopefully, inspired to to pay it forward in similar ways. Bring that level of expertise to all of your study. And all of the repertoire exploration and the concertizing bring that level of work to your music technology work or your recording engineer work. Become the best, most demanded, most in-demand recording engineer in your area. Um, when it comes to developing the saxophone, the mission continues to move forward. You're all going to play your 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 part in this. You're going to collaborate with some friend to write a piece for you. you and, it, and, and and no, and I say that no composer is off limits. You don't have to be commissioning John Corleano to be validated as a as an artist. Right. You know, you you should be collaborating with your peers and and participating in living music, living art music, and and. There's composers in every music school that are that are that are wanting to work with people who are hungry to work with them, and that's where the saxophone is the most fertile territory for them. That's where they are all going to. And I tell my students, if you graduate, if you if you graduate from the University of Michigan and you don't, you have not premiered music by any of the student composers here, you've been wasting your time. And I don't want my students in the practice room all day long. I I want them developing friendships and. and and collaborations with these conductors and right. and composers that are all going to start to shape our musical profession beyond. And, uh, and that's where a lot of opportunities have come my way to, from those relationships that, 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 that pay off and those, that network that pays off decades later. Um, and, and so just keeping, you know, students have to keep their eyes and ears open at all times for opportunities and not, and they need to be genuine. People need to not think that you're doing it, you know, just to serve yourself, but right you know i mean be 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 willing to say yes to everything even if it's stressful to try to balance all of it say yes to everything that's certainly pushing the the view of the instrument forward and then if we can be conversant and if i can if i can be if i can hold down a conversation with the you know the best the best jazz player i know and and we can talk about the most recent artists, records, movements, you know, uh, movements, trends, and in, in the profession. And then I can turn right around and I can have an, an amazing conversation with a with a world class pianist about their literature. Then I think we we begin to just sort of we start to just sort of invade on everyone's territory, and and we're being seen as very serious minded musicians. You know, a lot of times the knock against Classical saxophone players is that we're sitting around and we're worshiping Paul Creston, and and, right. uh, and 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 the minute we kind of break that break out of that and show that we are so much more than that training literature, you know, which is still I still perform Paul Creston. I'm about to record the Paul Creston Saxophone Concerto for Naxos oh, for the are. Naxos label, like next the end of next week because they don't even have it in their catalog, and I'm recording it with Joanne Folletta. I mean, I'm passionate about that music, but I want to be able to make the statement. That the Paul Creston concerto still has a ceiling that hasn't been reached, and and if we are doing our parts to say that we can be doing it better and better and better than our predecessors. When you
0: say the the Paul Creston concerto has a ceiling that hasn't been reached, meaning we can perform these these pedagogical standards better, we have not used them up yet. There's so many more yeah, lessons I, to learn. I,
1: I I believe so, and I don't. I don't. I do not mean to that for that to sound arrogant or snobby in any way, but we but this literature deserves a second and third and fourth and fifth look in much of the same way that, that the clarinetists treat all their literature. Every conductor treats Beethoven's symphonies like like the standard by which they're being measured. You know, So they could be the most in, adventurous conductor in the world, but they're not going to have any credibility until they finally record their nine symphonies of Beethoven. Right, And it's like, does the market need that? And interestingly, the market ha- actually... The market does sort of embrace it, yeah. but but the, it, it's really crucial to a conductor that they pay their dues with their Beethoven, their Mahler, and their Mozart cycles, and and we, we we don't have literature I think like that. But I think we can say that when we when we complain about some of the struggles in our repertoire, is it is it simply because the music is at a lower level than that, or have we accepted? that the capacity to play that music has a ceiling. And, and I don't believe it. I do I believe the Glasnost can be played better. I believe the Crescent's concerto can be played at the same level. If Josh Bell picked it up and we erased the name of the composer in the corner and we said, we'd like you to learn this, how would it sound? What would be the approach? What would be the passion brought to how to play that music? Yeah. And, and we, and we do have literature like that. If you were to, Erase Glazunov's name and give it to a violinist. They would look at this as totally in their wheelhouse of music that they play all the time, and and when they would play it, it would be. And I did this once. I had one of my best friends in college was a violinist, and I asked her to learn the whole the first two pages of the Glazunov saxophone Concerto as a favor to me. I said I would like you to learn this, and I that, would. That's like
0: you a to good po- friend. Uh- <laughs> well, yes.
1: Well, we we were just talking about we were mainly talking about Boeing and the references right. to Boeing and Air and how vi- how string players talk about Air and how wind players talk about Boeing, right. and so <laughs> yeah. uh, and, yeah. and, and, and 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 I and I just said I I wanted her t- to show me what choices she would make with these the same exact phrase phraseology that we visually see between the two worlds. Right. They're seeing the they're seeing the exact same music. And, and and maybe what's different in various editions for string playing is they might see up bow and down bow indications or they're putting them in themselves right but it's the same music let me see how you would tackle that and she did that for me and it was the greatest most eye-opening thing in my life to hear a violinist playing the glazunov
0: did it change your perception of the ceiling yes i
1: think i know because, i think i know
0: exactly what you're saying now okay because
1: at that moment it was like this is the, a slur no longer means simply don't tongue. And, you know, and, and so a, a slur has much more meaning than simply don't tongue between those notes, because that's what we're told in sixth grade. Right. When, you know, when there's a dot over the note, your tongue hits the reed, and that's it. We don't even think about the, we don't even think about the implication about what the meaning of staccato is. We just sort of accept it as short, and that's it. Right. But there's 10, there's 10 kinds of staccatos, maybe. And so when we look at slur, we're told that means you put down the buttons, and in between the buttons, you just don't tongue. And that sets us up, that that hardwires us as young students to just sort of see in very kind of vanilla, right, terminology, the very terminology. So you, when you work with a string player, and you they see a slur, there is so much of what goes into connecting notes across across that bow, the length of that bow, and the pressure, and the way they're connecting notes and how that affects us color depending on where they are on the bow. Are they on the are they at the frog or at the are they at the tip? I keep a bow in my I keep a violin bow in my office. Not really? And, and, you know. and and every single time my students start working on a classical piece like that, I pick up my bow and I teach them all the mechanics of bow arm and 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 placement. And because I said because you must see how a string player translates the slur mark and if we can bring that to a piece like the Glazunov, which by, by by no means is the Glazunov Concerto a saxophone concerto, it could have been anything. You know, there's nothing about it that makes it inherently saxophone except for the limited range. Right. And he still does even go down to a low B flat. You right. know, and and uh, but uh, you know that piece is a cello piece, is a violin piece, is a clarinet piece. I mean, and and we need to match. And I think that has been my my whole kind of mo you know for the last 20 years of my life is that i want clarinet players to like my playing <laughs> i want vi- i want violin players to like my playing right. i want pianists to like my playing and and and, and i want them to, and i tell my students all the time you know you might get you might get your friends to come to your recital but but you want them to come to your next performance too because they want they just want to hear you they they, they, just, they just want to hear you Um, if if we want to talk about mass marketing consumer side of that, I mean, your playing needs to sell tickets, right? And, and, and if you don't, and if, and if your playing, isn't captivating, it isn't memorable. Uh, you play out of tune, you don't you play outside of the parameters or the expectations of the gate of the gatekeepers. Again, you play outside of that. You don't get asked back. You don't get to, you know, you don't, you're not, and it's certainly not going to translate into ticket sales you know and i think that's and i think that is maybe where the next frontier of classical playing has to continue to go we've been, we've been there we we're be, we've been getting there and 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 it's wonderful and it's and it's better than it's ever been and we have more people playing the instrument i think than in any other time in history right. and we have more access to great information than in any other time in history so we have to capitalize on it when a student doesn't have a metronome or a tuner, we're at a point where it's like that's simply unacceptable because you can get a $1.50 $1. tuner on your iPhone.
0: Right.
1: So we are at a point where it's literally unacceptable when a student's not working with a tuner and a metronome. When we were students you, and you wanted a really good metronome, you had to spend $150 on a Dr. B. Right. You know? And I have a $5,000 or $3,000 uh Twelve wheel strobe tuner in my in my office that a kid cannot buy, but that's a resource in my room, you know, for my kids. Right. So like
0: we we've got you know, we've got free tuning drones on the web. If you just Google tuning drones, you get some like, yeah. five results immediately for free tuning drones.
1: So it, it, it and so you know it if we if someone wants to chalk all this up to elitism, okay, fine, I, I'm guilty as charged. But I came from I came from a world. Where, where people are just telling me repeatedly that it's unacceptable to play out of tune and 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 yeah okay there's times where out of tuneness is cool and it works and it's necessary and maybe it's even built into a piece and we've had I mean are we are we gonna hold some of the greatest musicians in history to you know to a tuner and right. be able to say well you know so that's unfair but but it still drives me to say that it's if it's possible, I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to fight for it until I, until I can't play the horn anymore. And I certainly got that from Donald Sinta. So maybe I don't sound exactly like him, but everything about who I am it was fueled by just those expectations on a daily basis. And you know, when people would ask him, like, what school of playing do you come from? He hated those questions. He said, I come from the school of in time, in tune... And the right notes. Like, that's the school I come from. It's that simple. It's not about who you studied with. Right. And, and, and the genealogy of saxophone has also been this massive, like, it's, it's been a massive problem. It's like, I studied with so-and-so, and when so-and-so said you're supposed to do it this way, somehow that is sacrosanct? I don't think so. No, it used, I to, believe- used to be when we know,
0: met someone, the first question they ask is, where'd you study? And it was almost like they couldn't right. evaluate your ability, your worth as a musician, until they knew your your lineage and your pedigree.
1: Absolutely, um, jazz musicians and, and do I, not care. Exactly, and I, and I, I have spent so much time with some of the greatest jazz musicians who I worship, and I know I can't do what they do. But I would like to be at the I would like to be at such a level that they respect what I do and say to themselves, I can't do what he does. Right. And, and and but so that drives me to like be able to to be inspirational on that level. And the jazz musicians whose opinions I care about, I think they they would they would reciprocate in that way. Right. But but when I spend time with with these artists, like Prism has done all these wonderful projects with some of the, some of our greatest luminaries in jazz. I mean, these are the greatest people I've ever spent time with, and and they're kind and open and caring and 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 they just love. I don't think I've ever learned to love music more than when I spend time with someone like Joe Lovano, who just bleeds music every moment of his day. And it's always caused me to question, like, really, do I love music enough? Because when I'm around someone like Joe Lovano or Miguel Zanon or Melissa Aldana, you know, who I just collaborated with, I mean, when she wasn't rehearsing with us, with PRISM and working and getting ready for our concerts, she left to go practice. And then, you know, and then like we would pick her up at the hotel and like, what did you do today? She's like, I practiced. I mean, and, and, you know, and you just realize, my God, I, I, I just am not doing enough. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you know, and, 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 it's, and because her response would be like, I, I practiced. Like, what did you, what, were you practicing today too? <laughs> it's like, well, uh, no, I, uh, I, you know, I, uh, I was watching a little TV, you know, uh, I mean, Netflix. I mean, yeah. uh, I mean uh, yeah, stranger things, I, new seasons out. Yeah. Know. Come on. We're human. So, you know, I know exactly. So, I mean, you know, those are, I mean, maybe those are the outliers, but boy, that passion really just, it, it just, it, it is contagious. Uh, and I, and I'm hopeful that students will find that same passion too.
0: I, well, I, I, no doubt, I know you need to run. Um, this has been really inspiring. I really appreciate it. Um, people want to find you online. Where do you recommend they go to find and learn all about what you're doing and keep up?
1: Well, I've, I've, uh, you know, been a little better about updating my uh, websites now. <laughs> I'll and, put a uh, link in the show notes. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. So Tim- TimothyMcAllister.com. I keep a new section on my feed there, um, and you can you can keep up with all of my concerts. I'm pretty busy this summer, so I'm there. I'm, you know, I might be playing in in, in some places close to some of some of your audience yeah absolutely um, and then um uh, and then uh you can find me on on twitter facebook and instagram i think i think i discovered instagram relatively late but boy it's really where a lot of uh, a lot of your audience kind of resides right yeah for sure yeah it's you know and so uh yeah find me there and please connect with and me and when's the album coming out so this uh project encore album this is with the great pianist liz ames mm-hmm. It's an album of short works. Uh, everything is between three and six minutes long, fifteen composers, and it's coming out on Numa Records. It'll come out It should be a late September release. And it's an entire just massive you know grab bag of styles and and uh, um, you know composers at different stages of their careers, different ethnicities, gender. Uh, you know, the idea was to just create this immediate infusion of fun, short, virtuosic works that could serve as kind of recital fillers and encores to larger pieces. Love that. And in each one of them themselves represents kind of a specific style and, and just a, a way to collaborate with some of, you know, some close friends, but some some of our favorite composers, from, even from different countries, because we need to quit, you know, licking our wounds saying we don't have enough literature. <laughs> And you know, because there's a lot of literature to take advantage of, but in my case, I wanted to be able to create an immediate infusion of what I thought were some of the best pieces and composers that I could help, uh, you know, bring to the, bring to the table. Awesome. So that's that's due out this fall. Awesome.
0: Tim McAllister, thanks for your time, and
1: keep up the awesome work, man. Thank you, sir. It's great to connect. Tim.